Welcome, Professor Harbinski, to the Let's Talk Value podcast. Hi, Craig. Hi. And welcome back to our listeners. It's the first podcast of the year 2022, who can believe it, second or third year in the pandemic, depends on how you count, and uh, also the first episode in this third season. So very glad to kick this off with really somebody who knows what he's talking about, a longtime fellow in the healthcare ecosystem and circus maybe. Uh, as a quick reminder, this series, uh, so my name is Raina Walter. I'm the founder and CEO of 5P Healthcare Solutions, a consulting firm that tries to help build those bridges across the five Ps, patient, providers, pharma, payer policy. Some people could say across the silos. And so wherever there are silos, we lose efficiencies and we have trust issues. And this is things we're discussing today with Craig. So Craig is a professor of neuropathology pathology, sorry, at the University uh, Hospital Northwestern in Chicago or the Memorial Hospital. But I think his scope and his interest goes far beyond both the topic and the city. So thanks for being with us today, Craig. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. And so uh, we always start with this 50,000 birds view. Some people say, what does value mean to you? Think it's a difficult question, but others say, well, it's an easy one. The solutions to it are <laughs> difficult, but let's start, Craig. What are your views on value in healthcare? Well, value, value really means what it says. It means getting the biggest bang for the buck, so to speak. Uh, but that, you know, in thinking about this, it gets complicated quickly because while the dollars are easy to quantify, like, like some would of course, contend. Uh, but who determines what the biggest bang really is for that buck? And what does that actually look like? In, in a lot of facets of our life, of our culture, our society, this is easy to determine. For, it, it's just up to the consumer. It's entirely based on what we prefer. So like my son, for example, is really into Legos. My daughter loves American Girl dolls. And both are very high quality, but neither are cheap. So when they want the latest and greatest Lego set or American Girl doll, who ultimately decides whether it's worth it? Well, me with their input, of course. And, and what are the consequences really of my guessing wrong, whatever that means, whatever that might look like? It's pretty low in the greater scheme of things. You know, if I overpurchase for a particular set, it's not that big of a deal, especially if the kiddo is really happy. But what about other purchases like, like clothing or a house or food? You know, the more, the more essential these items, the greater the stakes, the higher the stakes become. And then in healthcare, we're talking, of course, about people's lives or at least their quality of life. And it doesn't get much more important than that. So, so one might reasonably, and a lot of people do more or less, act like cost shouldn't factor at all into healthcare. How dare we quantify, you know, a life or quality of life? But wealth is finite. You know, that's why they call economics the dismal science. And, and whatever is spent on healthcare cannot be spent on other worthwhile things. So, so that's what makes them so important to judge value in healthcare. But there's a lot of subjective variables that factor into it. The, the person's overall health, their expected long-term prognosis. You know, everybody's got their own personal and psychosocial issues that might factor into it. So, you know, making a, a top-down blanket statement or a magic formula that applies equally to everybody is very tricky. And, but we still got to make these value judgments because the economics forces to. 
Uh, now, in my, for example, my little corner of the world here, diagnostic neuropath, we've got all these new molecular diagnostic tests. It's really sophisticated, powerful tests like, like you know, next generation sequencing, copy number arrays, uh, methylation profiling is the most recent one. They're very powerful, but they're not cheap. However, as a proportion of, of a typical brain tumor patient's overall healthcare costs, it's, it's barely a rounding error. And the information they generate has a massive impact on how that patient is going to be treated henceforth. So I would contend that, that uh, those tests really do represent value. They by and large represent a, tr a tremendous bang for the buck. And, and this is because even going a little further, you know, as pathologists, we're the goalkeepers of the team, so to speak. Uh, uh, you know, a patient comes in with a brain lesion, some symptoms, you know, the, they do a workup clinically, radiologically, they have a certain differential, but the biopsy should, if there's a biopsy, and there usually is, should produce something that's definitive and concrete. You know, so when a patient gets a biopsy, if I'm wrong in my interpretation of it, that's basically it. There, there's no backstop. Um, it's like what I was told once as a trainee about this incredible responsibility we have as pathologists in diagnosing cancer, because once we do that, a series of events will take place that cannot be undone, like radiation and chemotherapy, and, and not to mention the incredible psychological stress, of course, that that kind of a diagnosis has on the patient and their loved ones. So since molecular testing greatly reduces the chances of us making a mistake like that, once again, it, the value, it, it, to me, it speaks for itself. So I, I think in terms of bang for the buck, things like these new innovations, like molecular diagnostic tests, uh, over the long haul really do, in my opinion, pay for themselves. And but we'll get back. Easy, I was going to say, it's not always easy to quantify, though, all the benefits of those tests from our and we'll get back to that towards the end because i think it's fascinating what's happening in your field obviously i mean in diagnostics in general but neuropath obviously is leading the way on on some of that innovation as well but if we stay a little bit so thanks actually for volunteering the definition from through the your eyes of your kids and i think this is just bang on like what does value mean it means you know everything and anything to different people but it is really kind of what really resonates emotionally with somebody and what they can do with it in their lives and i think this is a really such a such a good reminder something else that you said i think at some point you you said goalkeepers said teams and i think um the trick as you already just, just you know explained around what is value what's the worth of a human's life who can actually who is you know positioned to determine this but i think this element of team and you know there's a series of activities and events that you said that will follow for example the diagnostic of a cancer diagnosis for a human being and but any diagnosis for for a patient there's a series of activities that happens and that's, i think it's the coordination of this and i think we're right back to what today happens often is that there are silos. There can be a silo between the GP and the hospital, between the surgeon and the lab, between, you know, the fellow and the attending physician, you know, the, the intersections are numerous. And I'm interested a little bit to hear from you because you sit, as you say, as a goalkeeper, right in the middle of a ton of intersections. And uh, you and I had previous discussions in the past, you know, be it around the book or in general of what we do together is the word trust. 
And so, yes, we can come up with all the technique. You said, you know, the most fancy molecular diagnostics, whatever, all this drives cost. Of course it does. But it also, let's talk a little bit about where we lose efficiencies and we lose potential for innovation, actually, because either we do mistakes or we don't talk to each other. So maybe you have a great idea, but you don't tell me, so I can't, you know, move on. So let's talk a little bit about these intersections and maybe you have examples or ideas you want to share on things that work well in your mind and where you see potential for doing better. Yeah, yeah, I, I think the, well, as concerns trust and communication, they go hand in hand, they synergize, they feed on each other. The more you communicate with somebody else, the greater the level of trust and greater the trust, the more you feel comfortable communicating with them. For example, as a pathologist, you know, if I'm on the fence between say a grade one versus a grade two meningioma, if I don't trust the clinicians, then I just make my best guess. But you know, if I talk to them and say, look, if I call this a grade two, what are you going to do to that patient? Oh, we're going to irradiate. Then I might say, you know what? There's just not enough here for me to really be sure that this is going to be a bad actor, that this is going to recur quickly. How about we just step back, call it a grade one or 1.5 and, and just watch the patient and see how they do. And, and in so doing, avoid un potentially unnecessary radiation. You know, that kind of communication amplified over an entire healthcare system can really improve outcomes and reduce costs. And it underscores why it's so important that we do communicate freely, openly, and honestly with everybody else without fear of retribution or mockery or any of these other things. That's why in the United States Constitution, freedom of speech is the first and most important of the Bill of Rights. Because without that dissemination of ideas, systems lose their ability to adapt and they will degenerate. To make it practical, well, some of our listeners might not be so familiar with the, the ways of working and operating in the hospital setting and in the clinics. So I know that you guys do what we call um, tumor boards or, you know, these. So can you tell us practically when you say you talk to the clinician, to the treating doctor, um, can you tell us how this works very practically? I think you meet regularly and who sits there and, and how does it work actually in real life? Yeah, yeah. Well, if I have, well, for example, I mean, if I have with the molecular testing, uh, just to develop that, you know, and, and stay along, the, along those lines, you know, even talking to the hospital administration, we had to have free and open communication to tell them, look, here's why this is necessary. This is why we've got to invest capital in it. And for their part, they had to be willing to listen and act on what we were telling them. They had to trust us. And then for the treating physicians, like at Tumor Board and even on an individual case-by-case -case basis, you know, it took them time to get used to this idea that, hey, molecular testing can radically flip a diagnosis that, that even if the tissue biopsy is not you know, diagnostic by traditional light microscopy, the tumor has a chert mutation, it's got EGFR amplification in the specimen, we can confidently call it a glioblastoma. Those sorts of things uh, over time on a case-by-case -case basis and at seminars and think tanks at grand rounds and tumor boards, we keep presenting cases like this over and over and over again, you know, and show oftentimes a disconnect between the histology and the molecular or, or and concretely show how molecular finds the diagnosis. Um, whenever we write these cases up, if there's salient literature, like really important studies that back up our interpretation of the molecular results, I always include those references in case either the patient, because they'll read the reports, or the physician wants to read further. 
Um, and then we show the data and follow them over time. And, and that is the data. When, when you do it that way, it over, over gradually, it presents a compelling enough rationale where now our biggest advocates for molecular testing are the, the physicians and very often mm -hmm. very engaged patients, you know, the ones who mm -hmm. are really in, in, uh, engaged in their own mm -hmm. care. They understand it because they follow the literature as well. So it, it, that, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, and I think this is what you do beautifully, I think, in your day job. But I also want to move on because you are somebody very active on social media as well. And I want to make the link there because, again, in the context of trust and communication, and you said something even in your diagnostics report, you would volunteer information on what the right literature references. You said you volunteer all a ton of information with the physician, with the patient. And actually, that is a means to break down those silos among these stakeholders, for example. So you take it even a level further outside of the brick walls of your hospital to, you know, on social media. And I think you, you have, you know, thousands of followers out there. And what I watch, like not understanding even a percent of what you're posting, but I find it fascinating. And the pictures sometimes are very beautiful. But I think what I do observe and what I hear is, you know, it is by volunteering information. You're not, nobody forces you to do this, right? And, and I presume you don't do this just to look fancy, but it's really about this creating the community. And I think I want to, because sometimes physicians are sh shy on social media or they're not shy to say their opinion, but maybe they're shy to just share information without an expectation of return. Maybe you can speak to us a little bit and encourage others to follow your suit. I think you're, you're right, especially with pathology. We do have that reputation and, and behind every stereotype is a grain of truth uh, of being introverted, uh, being retiring and shy. And, and not really being that willing to engage with people. And, and as a result, pathology has been traditionally regarded as kind of a black box, uh, not just to not just the patients, but also to caregivers, you know, I mean, healthcare providers. And, uh, you know, you send the tissue or the sample or whatever it is off to pathology. And then, you know, a certain amount of time later, you get some kind of report, you know, an anatomized, you know, kind of a... It can be super transactional, report. right? Service yeah. provider. And, and, I send you so, something, you give me something. And yeah, it's like a vending machine in some yeah. sense. You give me the right specimen, you get the diagnosis you want. And and uh, I, I just don't think that, I mean, that that's okay as far as it goes, but it just doesn't go far enough. Not today. Uh, not in the era of social media, mass communication. We can do better than that. And, and, and we can show a little bit, at least pull back the curtains, so to speak, and, and show how we, what we're looking at. What are we looking at? And, and what do these molecular results look like? And how do we integrate the molecular results with histology, the microscopy, and produce an integrated report? Um, and just show the evolution of the literature on this. And once you do that, uh, I, I think people not only respect you they don't respect you less, they respect you more because they have a deeper understanding of what goes on. And then in the cases, which thankfully doesn't happen too often, but when I talk to a clinician and I say, look, we really are not able to land on a specific diagnosis in this case, they're much less likely to be, I mean, they might be a little you know, disappointed, but they're not gonna be that frustrated. They're not gonna, you know, they're not gonna take it out on us, so to speak. Uh, uh, they'll say, all right, you know, we understand how hard this really is, you know, in, in many cases, same for patients too. The one area I would say that we really are not doing as good a job with communication. I think we're coming a long way with, with our with healthcare providers and with patients, but it's it's really the third party payers, one of the five Ps in your in your scheme there. It's 
and in part, it's we've been having a hard time getting access to them just to really lay out a case for why molecular testing does pay off over the long haul if we operate on a routine basis. So, so what happens, we get these, these, these anonymized or these impersonal letters and emails saying that, oh, you know, coverage of a particular test was denied, no explanation, no opportunity for appeal or recourse. And, and I just, I, I see that and I shake my head because I thought, you know, if, if the communication lines with payers were better, I'm sure we could see that kind of progress that we've seen with providers and, and uh, uh, patients. Very nice call out here, listeners. <laughs> and, and I think to this idea, obviously, we don't have the magic button here. But often when people ask me, so how do you unlock these super complex doors like, you know, policy, FDA, payers, like huge companies, 100,000 employees? How do you break through what you're just describing, like in your day job? And I think just the experience, looking back on the pilots, you know, uh, projects where it has worked, it always came down to people. There was like this one, so I can give you one example from a payer actually, where the payer said, and it was more for you know paying for outcomes um, in, with patients in a certain disease state. And this person, this healthcare in an, was actually an executive of a health insurance, attended a meeting where a, a clinician professor was giving a talk on value-based healthcare. And he said, I like this personally. He went up to talk to the guy and said, okay, we have this case in country X on diabetes, let's say. Why don't we pull off the two of us a pilot project? And all of a sudden, now this is a role model and a template 10 years later for many to come, and nobody remembers how it started. So it's just kind of a word of encouragement to, you know, that individuals, and sometimes maybe here today, somebody's listening, who knows, and who will pick up the ball. But also, I think in the payer field that you're describing, like it doesn't take five minutes that you need the policymaker in this because maybe there needs to be a new law and a regulation or a local guideline or something. So that is why we always have constantly this tango for five, like it always sticks together um, uh, constant, constantly. But thanks for sharing where you, I mean, your, your wins, where you see uh, good stuff going on, but also a uh, call for action where we need to do better. Um, I wanted to come back to uh, your molecular and the fancy stuff, and maybe we take five minutes where we say cost neutral, the world is perfect, we don't have a money issue. Um, because what we also know is that the, the true innovation happens at the intersection. Like I could imagine only Craig sitting in his office 24 seven, yes, you would be so much creative to this point, and you are very smart, but if we think about most of the big inventions or small inventions occur because through that communication in a lab, in a conference, writing a book together, writing an article together. Um, so you've already told us a little bit compared to where your, how your job looked like maybe more analog 10 years ago. Uh, maybe you want to share a little bit what's, what, where we have come in terms of diagnostics over the last 10 years and you started talking about this. But also like let's be, you know, blue sky, where do you see it in 10 years with do things like, art we hear about artificial intelligence all the time. How, so tell us a little bit, you know, how is it, has it evolved 10 years from now into 10 years in your mind? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's come a long way even when I was a trainee. When I was a trainee, I still remember, for example, uh, using paper charts, you know, with the old manila folders and all that. 
and, and when we I first used the electronic medical record, it was called Mars, I've, I've medical archival retrieval system or something like that. I don't even think that exists anymore. We're many generations beyond that. Uh, and now in pathology, we're writing up reports digitally. And, and for a while there, we were doing it through a, a system called Copath, and then it was being transposed into Mars or other EMRs. Now, now it, we're writing our cases up in the same electronic system that the treating physicians use, that the radiologists use. So it's all integrated. It's that same system that's used for doctor notes, MRIs, everything. And that's huge because it makes me more effective. I can better integrate what I'm seeing pathologically with the patient's overall condition. And, and the next step forward, I think, really needs to be a better integration of these EMRs across different hospital systems. Like right now, everybody goes to a Northwestern affiliate hospital, and I forget, I think they have like 14 hospitals in their system, or we're all now within the same EMR. I, I think there may be a few outlying places that are still harmonizing, but by and large, we're all in the same uh, record system. So if I get a path case for consultation from one of those outlying hospitals, no problem. I just look the patient up in my EMR, they're right there, all their notes are there, everything, the, the, the clinical impression, you know, whether they're immunosuppressed, prior infections, anything. It's all right there. But I'm often required or asked to render very difficult diagnoses on a consult basis from tissue that came from outside our system. And in that case, you get the slides. And if you're lucky, you get a pathology report to go with it. And that's basically it. I don't have any radiology. I don't have any clinicians notes to look at. I have nothing. Uh, I have no idea whether the patient's already been treated for some other malignancy or got, you know, anything that can really factor into a diagnosis. And then that becomes a lot more difficult. And at some level, there's got to be a way of integrating all these systems, even if they're not the exact same kind of system, if they can, if we can figure out how to make them talk to each other a little better through some sort of portal, that, that would be a huge step forward. I'd like to see that happen in the next 10 years. Yeah, and in our jargon, we call this interoperability, right, of systems. And absolutely, yeah. I think this is a huge silo and a huge black box and, and sunk of where money just disappears. Yeah. And by the way, also for patient care, right, because it's duplication, it's like Dr. X, it takes four weeks, and they figure out, oh, the MRI or the slide didn't even arrive, it was lost in the post like super analog yeah. world you know oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah so and, and that even goes into artificial intelligence because i know a lot of people have been talking about big data and how it's going to revolutionize yeah. healthcare and that's that's going to be difficult for ai to do if it doesn't have enough material to work with now the data has to be big and you can only really get big data if you have that kind of trans institutional or uh, a system uh, where where there's more better crosstalk between these electronic medical records. Otherwise, AI just doesn't have that kind of big data to yeah. work with. That's it, yeah. But it has to be in such a way that patient confidentiality mm -hmm. and privacy is still protected. Mm -hmm. I mean, that comes back to that trust issue we were talking about earlier. Mm -hmm. If we can do that, then AI is going to explode. I mean, that would lead for sure to better ways of, of, of improving value and, and improving outcomes on the, for these patients. We're doing something similar to like, like the methylation profiling it is a relatively minor or modest version of that in some sense, because you know when we do methylation profiling, we're running the assay and we're getting hundreds of thousands of CPG site methylation data. It's, it, it's all binary, it's all like ones and zeros. And you get maybe you know, 800,000 of those pieces of data per, per case. 
Well, it's basically artificial intelligence in the form of these computer algorithms that are figuring out the pattern to those ones and zeros and figuring out as a result what kind of tumor the thing is. And that's working extraordinarily well. It's an iterative uh, machine-based learning process. But if we're going to take that to the next level across all of healthcare, not just you know, molecular diagnostics, mm -hmm. then, then we really do need a better EMR integrative system. Yeah, perfect. Craig, I'm looking at the watch. I mean, time flies here. <laughs> I think we could have filled easily another half hour. But unfortunately, we are at the end of our uh, session here today. Anything you would like to leave our listeners with, uh, Craig, today? Well, I just say, you know, there's... There's never been a better time for all the problems we've got. There's never been a better time to be involved in the biomedical enterprise. I mean, for what we can do for people, I mean, just look at the COVID pandemic, you know, and how quickly these extraordinarily effective vaccines were developed. And how, and if it wasn't for them, millions of people around the world are now alive today who would have been dead over just this past year alone. And that's an example of the five Ps largely working together. Now, not everything's not perfect. There's still gaps in trust for example, and, but we don't really need a perfect system to achieve substantial improvements. We just have to keep doing better on a day-to-day -day basis than what we did previously. And it's great to see, Verena, how you're contributing to that through you know, your book and through these podcasts and the dialogue that, that results from it. I think we're heading in the right direction. No other nice words to conclude today. Thank you very much, Craig.